0: Prior to with some conference announcements, before we get into this week's episode, Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Gdansk, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build the network of Scholar enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for the newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked in the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st through the 3rd. Closure Cons is the original conference for closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Clojure. Visit 2016closure org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February in 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to exploit this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lifts, Closure, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The Call for Talks is open until January 1st of 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdaDays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNGeekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off the ticket price. ClosureD has been announced It will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closurede.de. The day before Closure D, on the twenty fourth of February in Berlin, Germany, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the range. For more information about the conference, visit BobConf, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Jonas Bonaire. Jonas, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm glad to be on the show. My name is Jonas As You've already introduced me as I'm the CTO and also co-founder of Lightman. And I've been been pretty active in the open source community for quite some time. The most prominent projects that I've been sort of involved in is AspectWorks. It was an AOP, an aspect-oriented programming, so sort of compiler uh, that was later merged with AspectJ. So I worked I worked on the AspectJ for compiler for a while, and also Akka. Then the Akka, the actor distributed computing platform. So um, lately, I've been focusing mainly on Akka. And sort of reactive systems, essentially, which is a lot about what we do at Lightband.
0: And Akka is what put you on my radar specifically that I know of. Now that you mentioned Aspect J and that work, I've heard of it mainly due to the corresponding Aspect stuff for.NET. But I was hearing a lot about Akka from the.NET community as well, with Akka.NET coming back and then just knowing about Scala and the rest put you on the radar so i wanted to get you in and talk about some of those decisions to pick up scala use scala how you found it and the inspiration for akka and dig into some of that stuff so let's start with how you got into software a little bit because you came into java and then you made the transition to scala
1: yeah exactly I started out as a Java developer. Actually, I'm, I have sort of an unusual background perhaps for many sort of hackers or software engineering geeks that I, I didn't hack much as a kid. Actually, not at all. I was mainly studying math at the university. I, I really didn't program any at all actually until the first year in, I actually, one step back. I actually wasn't planning at all to become a software engineer. I was planning to become a mathematician, but it felt a bit dry after studying it for three years. And I was thinking, okay, what should I do now? And teaching might be a good thing. So I was actually thinking of becoming a math teacher. And, and since I hadn't done so much math, I had sort of the first six months free at the university. And then I was thinking, okay, I should. it's probably good to know something about computers and, and programming. So I signed up for an introduction to C++. And essentially, I mean, during that semester, I got so hooked. I felt like this is what I want to do. This is sort of applied math. And it felt right at home. So I switched over to the software engineering division and started, started studying computer science instead. My first language was actually C. Of course, we did other languages as well, like Assembler and Pascal and so on at the university. But then right out of school, I, Java was the big thing. So I, I got into Java as working as an IT, sort of J2E back then, consultant for a few years. I was doing sort of anything between, you know, mobile devices, WAP, but was it these monochrome pictures, uh, you know, that you submitted out to these really, really low-powered phones, a bunch of other interesting projects. And that was also when I started to get really into sort of open source. Started contributing to a bunch of open source projects. I kicked off that AspectWorks project that really became a real hit and so on. Of course, that made it even more interesting to invest more and more time into the open source community. And how I started getting into Scala was essentially that I was attacking Java. And I actually first started, I mean, I had done functional programming in school, of course, but I have not really gotten really into it as a practitioner. But I I had some friends working at Ericsson using Erlang, and and they kept on saying how great Erlang was. So, So that was actually the first language that I really tried to learn outside school as a functional programming language I, i've always liked prologue and, and been fascinated by it so I, I actually didn't think the erlang syntax was that weird and that alien that ugly love like some of my colleagues think but quite intuitive actually so erlang was my first love and then i sort of i tried to get people i was a consultant I and mean, i had my own company back then and i was really trying to get people to start using erlang but it was really hard convincing but it was it was probably too alien And at the same time, then I started tinkering with Scala, I felt like this is actually probably the language that I can use and that I can get clients to use and actually, you know, being able to introduce into projects. And I started learning it and I love the actor model and the way of thinking about distribution and concurrency in Erlang and especially their way of doing fault tolerance. And I was really missing that in Java and Scala had an actor's library and that also made it very appealing to start using. So I started using that and did some contributions first to the original Scala Actors Library, working with Philip Haller, who started that at EPFL, and later felt like it could use a clean rewrite. So I started that initiative and called it ACA and put it out there. And it took off. It struck a nerve, so to speak, at, at people. And I think it filled a void somehow. And people got excited about it. And yeah, that's essentially how I'm landed where I'm at right now.
0: And so the exposure to Scala then was looking for some of that aspect of the functional nature that you found in Erlang and the behavior of that and realizing that you could sell Scala to other people as a consultant as opposed to Erlang?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, Scala runs on the JVM and it's, it has very good interoperability with Java. And most other languages that I had tried, functional language, didn't have that. They had some sort of foreign function interface. And Erlang had, of course, some interoperability story, but none of them were even close to Scala. Most of the clients that I had, and also myself, I mean, all the products that I created, they were in Java, and it was natural that I wanted to have a, a nice way of interoperating with them. And also, having used the JVM for so long, You get spoiled by how good it is in terms of runtime stability and sort of the optimizing compiler and stuff like that, you know, the JIT and things like that. It's really hard to beat JVM for a lot of reasons. And with Scala, you didn't have to leave the ecosystem. You can just continue to use all the libraries that you liked, expecting the same performance and code everything functionally. Actually, you didn't have to do that even because Scala has two paths, the object-oriented side and the functional side. And they mix and blend very, very well, I think. In other languages that I've seen that have had that, they are more like a Frankenstein monster in a way. It works, but it's really ugly to use them together. But Scala, I think it actually succeeded to almost seamlessly allow you to move between these two worlds. And that was also very appealing.
0: And you just kind of touched on what I was hoping to dig into was the two different tracks. So I've heard some people come into Scala as a better... Java and then discover the functional aspect. But as you said, you came in from the functional aspect and found a functional language that fits in with the JVM then.
1: Yeah, I sort of came in from both because I had been doing Java for quite a few years and also C back then, which which is perhaps not obvious really. But yeah, I really love that I didn't have to choose before I started solving my problem. But I could actually use the right tool for the right job. Some problems lend themselves very well to object oriented designs, while others to functional design. And and I think Aka is actually a good and actors in general, even in Erlang is actually quite a good example of that. The coarse grained sort of components are very object oriented. I think both ACA and Erlang are actually quite object oriented, at least to the original sort of definition by Alan Kay. Messaging was first class, and so on. So you can think in terms of objects when you design your system, but within each one of these objects, you use function composition to solve your problem. And this is very much how I think about microservices as well, and so on. And so of try to apply functional programming. They work very well as sort of a way to optimize a solution, right? More While objects perhaps work better at the system level, if you should simplify some of it.
0: And you play with Erling, you see their implementation of the actor model with a focus on distributed, fault tolerant, concurrent software. And then you come back and you find Scala, you pick it up, you see a actor library in Scala. What did that look like at the time compared to what you got used to in Erlang and set the stage for seeing, okay, now it's time for me to try another route and start taking the steps down towards creating ACA?
1: That's a good question. I think the guys at EPFL and that started the original stall actress had done a great job, but it was naturally more research than striving for solving production type of problems. It had a lot of interesting ideas, I think, conceptually and academically, but the performance was not where I personally wanted it to be. And in particular, the thing that I got really excited about when learning Erlang and where I think that actors really shine and which also is probably the most underappreciated feature of the actor model it was actually not part of the original actor model but the way we think about actors now is fault tolerance and resilience and in particular the erlang supervision type of model so i I first tried to add that as a contribution to the skull actors original skull actors library and very much inspired by erlang then with these gen behaviors you know gen server and all these things but it felt like it would be good to sort of rewrite it from scratch, thinking about these things from ground up, focusing on performance, focusing on fault tolerance built into the platform from day one, but also focusing on interoperability with other things and so on. So that was the initial goal of ACA. And it played out pretty well. It later then replaced the original skull actors and the author, Philip Howlett, has contributed to ACA. So I think it's been all good.
0: And I've heard very good things about Akka. I haven't actually done much Scala and never got into the .NET port for Aka.NET, but I've heard it sounds as a pretty good competitor considering you're on a different VM and the VMs have different baselines and guidelines of what they provide you. So can you give an outline of some of the constraints and trade-offs you made for things like adapting to a new VM, whereas... The Erlang VM has the scheduler under the covers and immutability, which don't necessarily make sense in the Java world. So what were some of the things that you took back and forth and had to adapt for the JVM?
1: That's a great question. There are definitely trade-offs with with both platforms. And Erlang has the benefit of the VM understands actors all the way down. So they have full isolation for each actors all the way down. There's no such thing as, as shared memory. And you have per actor, garbage collection, which means that you can have some more predictable behavior in terms of fairness and these type of things. That said, I think the JVM is quite good nowadays when it comes to garbage collection. So you don't get this stop the world type of problems you had a few years back. But Erlang is definitely ahead there. But on the other hand, it's a dynamically typed language and and it can't First, the Erlang VM is a bit old and it hasn't been progressing as much as the JVM, but also the language makes it hard to do some of the optimizations that the JVM can do. So in my opinion, in my experience, ACA on the JVM has a lot better performance, not for everything, but in general, when it comes to building larger systems than Erlang. And it's essentially exclusively thanks to the JVM and how the Scala compiler can optimize code being statically typed. But this also means, you've already hinted at that, that some of the things that the Erlang guys can take for granted, like they don't need to worry about sharing state at all because everything is immutable. You actually need to do it by convention on the JVM. We have tried to give you tools that will simplify that and minimize the risk of running into problems and doing the wrong thing. But it is a fact that you can put an immutable object in the message, send it over to another actor and use it concurrently from two different threads. That's something that you just, it's really, really hard to avoid without sort of extending the compiler or writing your own compiler. And even if you do that, you can still use reflection and do it at runtime. So if you really want to shoot yourself in the foot, this actually, I mean, it's impossible to to stop you from doing so.
0: And so you take advantage of the JVM and you mentioned the garbage collection and some of that stuff is getting better as well as the type system. So... With these benefits, what are some of the other things? And just to put a pin in it, I do want to come back to the type system and how that works with these actors. But is there anything else that comes out of the power of the JVM that you've been able to take advantage of via being built in Scala or the JVM specifically when it comes to Akka? That is one of those things that's like, oh, we kind of have problems with this in the Erlang world, but that's just how it is because of the way we think about the VM in general.
1: Yeah, I mean, we the Java guys at Oracle have done a, g- a lot of interesting things with Java 8 now when it comes to things like Lambdas, et cetera. And, and in Scala 2.12, that actually was released today, just before this call, we have started to take advantage of a lot of these things to generate smaller code, faster code, et cetera. But to give some highlights, now, for example, the object-oriented side of Scala has traits, that's our mix-ins, and earlier, we had to create survey interface, a Java interface, and an anonymous class, implementing the concrete methods for every single trait. But now with Java 8, allowing concrete methods and on interfaces, we can just use that, which is quite nice. But I'm even more excited about that. We have sort of leveraged the Lambda syntax now for the single abstract method types, the SAM types. You can use them seamlessly between. If you create function literals in Scala, then they can just be whatever single abstract method types you would like it to be. I mean, callable, roundables, et cetera. Which makes it very convenient if, you want, if you're using Java libraries. That requires you to do that. Before, you had to do some nasty conversions between Scala functions and Java's lambdas. And also vice versa works. So these are things that we haven't started taking advantage of in ACA yet, of course, or any of our projects. But since ACA has both the Java side and the Scala side, I think we can do a lot of interesting things here for interoperability for users. Another thing that was, I mean, under the hood, we're using invoke dynamic now, for example. That means that we can just, as already hinted, generate smaller code. We don't need to generate an anonymous class for every single closure, which, of course, means that there's less garbage collection if if these closures are short-lived, which they sometimes are in functional programming. So this can also give both less bytecode, but also performance benefits at runtime.
0: And you are talking about the Scala side and the Java side in Akka and how you had to do the interop and account for both of them. Yep. And you mentioned you get types, but there's also with Scala two different routes. There's the hardcore functional, which uses things like ScalaZ or cats, where it's more the Haskell style. And then you have the object-oriented side, and then you have the Java inspiration of just per Java. So how does... Aka deal with those essentially three different types of paradigms of dealing with and defining things when you're actually setting up your actors and the implications about what each one of those means, be it the specificity of the types or things like commutability or the like?
1: Yeah, that's also a good question. Yeah, actors have had a lot of criticism, or no, not a lot, but some criticism in the last years, mainly probably more now because of they're getting popular. But it is some valid criticism around that an actor is essentially just effectful to a unit, you know. It's any to unit, essentially, if you look at it as a function. So it's essentially an effectful function. And that, of course, means that you can't use regular functional composition to compose your actors, but you have to do that on the protocol level instead. And of course, that's how people normally think in distributed systems. And since actors are distributed in nature, it sort of makes sense to raise that to the protocol level, because that's what you need to embrace when you live in the world of distributed systems anyway. But if you use actors just on a single JVM as a concurrency framework, of course, I do miss that you can't compose actors like you can do with functions. And there are some absolutely some drawbacks here. And also, another drawback that you have in Erlang, but also that you have in ACA, is that messages are of type any. You can send any message to an actor. You don't get the type safety that you have if you use real types and functions. And there's both a blessing and a curse, I think. The blessing is that actors are extremely dynamic. I mean, you know, actors, they have the possibility of using the primitive become. So I don't know if you know about that, but that means that for each new message, they can redefine their own behavior. They can change how they should react to the next message by becoming something else, essentially accepting a new closure and closing over it with a new behavior. And that means that actors can be extremely adaptive and they can turn, for example, themselves into, I mean, if one actor is overloaded, they can say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to turn myself into routers, spin up three replicas, five replicas for myself on other machines and then start delegating to them, for example. It also makes it very convenient to build state machines, like finite state machines, where for each state you actually become the next state. It makes it very intuitive to work with. And that's also how Erlang developers usually work with actors. But that said, all this dynamicity and power forces you to give up some of the type safety and all the goodness that the compiler can give you. And that's bad. So we actually, in ACA, we've been toying with a bunch of solutions for that. We've had a few iterations or sort of research projects, you can say. And one was called Type Channels. That was uh, created by Roland Kuhn. That was sort of more of an academic approach. It was really hard to use it was quite cool how it leveraged the type system even use scala macros to hook into the compiler to type check your protocol essentially but that didn't work out that well but the latest thing that we have created that i think works well is kolaka streams and that is sort of for a more constrained use case where you have your workflow and you want to be able to compose the workflow and it lends itself very well to streaming of course But it's more for workflow composition that uses streams, you could say. And then what it does is that it layers itself on top of actors. You get all the goodness as you have with actors. But since it's more a constrained problem to solve, you can actually know the input and the output in the stream for each different stage. You can actually use the type system here to force yourself to only accept these types as part of the stream graph. So if that's what you want to do, Then I think Akka Streams is really, really nice. In the early days of Akka, doing something like workflow or streaming between multiple parties, you would have to encode all of that yourself. But now you can do it very, very simple, sort of fluent interface using functional combinators like you would expect. Map filter, reduce like some simple windowing operating, group by, and all these things. But leveraging the power of Akka under the hood. And the last sort of attempt to solve it goes all the way and tries to introduce real types into the actor model itself. And that is something called ACA Typed. It's not yet released, but it's a model that is more true to the original actor model, I think, less class-oriented and more functional-oriented. And through some clever hacks and some clever sort of designs, more than hacks, I'd say, we can leverage the type system to encode the protocols to quite a large extent, actually, while not giving up much of the power. You can still have things like become and so on. So I encourage anyone to take a look at that and give feedback on it. And as I said, it's not released yet, but it's out there in experimental versions. So You can definitely download it and play with it. It might very well become the next generation of ACA if people are pleased with what we're building there.
0: And that's an interesting overview, and that was one of the reasons I was wondering, because compared to Erlang, Akka is really young comparatively speaking, and yeah, while it's used pretty broadly in industry, it still has the ability to change a little more evolve a little more build stuff on top of it, as opposed to what I've heard about the o t p stuff is they have to be very, very careful about backwards compatibility changes because they've still got this code running from 20-plus years ago on some of the stuff that still needs to be compatible and upgraded as much as possible as far right. as the pure VM aspect goes because it's built into the aspect, not as an additional library on top.
1: Yeah, that's very true, and I think that holds for a lot of things. Of course, it gives us the – even though Aka tries to really be back and compatible, it, we have definitely more freedom here to experiment and to try out new ideas and so on. But we've also been pretty good at leaving the core untouched and sort of layering functionality on top things like for example aka like cluster that using so sort of, you know epidemic gossiping similar to the react and cassandra the dynamo model for peer-to-peer computing is very nice and sort of complements the picture very well and something that i wish erlang had you have a service sort of through react and you know, react core and these type of things but it's not built into the language Another thing that I encourage people to take a look at is our event sourcing library on top of ACA that I think very much, you know, event sourcing as a paradigm very much matches the way you think in when you think in actors, because you already have the messages flowing around. They represent usually immutable state that it's facts. And why not just store them in the event log as they come in, right? And then you have all the history of everything that happened in the application. We're in the system, you can replay it for replication, you can replay it for fault tolerance, etc. And we have that now in what is called ACA persistence. So that's also something that people really, really like. When talking about ACA modules, I can just conclude by saying that we, ACA Streams also has this sort of new project within ACA Streams called Alpaca. It's, most Java developers would probably know about the Apache Camel project implementing enterprise integration patterns for integration essentially on the JVM. And the problem with that is that it's not reactive in any sense, meaning that it's not back pressured, so it can fall over if one producer can over sort of fully overload one consumer. And, and if since everything running in the same process, you can like host the whole node. And that's bad. And, and it's not asynchronous. And so what we're trying to do there is essentially to create this integration platform for all things streaming, everything, all endpoints that you would expect interop in this sort of new reactive world and of course sort of legacy protocols as well um, like like ftp mail and all these jms all these type of things and that's something that we just started and it starts to get traction so that's something that i also encourage people to take a look at if you're interested in open source we really need your help there as well It's is quite a low boundary to start contributing to open source by creating some simple endpoints for example
0: and you use the term reactive, and I've heard a couple of people talk about reactive in a couple of different ways, so can you give an outline of the view of what reactive means when it comes to
1: ACA? Sure. I mean, reactive has sort of become really popular the last years, and as with everything that's popular, I guess people sort of add their own definitions to it, right? It means something different to almost every single people or not every single guy but there are different camps you know this is my view of reactive and etc and one of the reasons why we wanted to help with that was that we wrote the reactive manifesto to have to explain what we think are the principles for building i mean software there are that can tackle the challenges that we face today with almost close to 100 percent uptime and ready for the cloud etc with the elasticity and, and all these things but it's also has sort of been a few other sort of trends you know around what we call reactive and so the, actually, the oldest one is probably functional reactive programming, FRP. That was probably the first time I heard the word reactive, but that sort of usually means a very well-defined, pretty constrained, definitely useful, but constrained tool that we don't see much in Java, to be honest. And, and there are interesting implementations in Haskell and so on. But in Java and Scala, et not even though some people say they do FRP, I don't think they actually really know what it means. So what people actually doing is how I categorize them as reactive programming, and reactive programming is canonically represented by at least on the JVM by RxJava and and on .NET reactive extensions and so on. They sort of started out this reactive programming movement. And that's an extremely useful sort of tool, I think. And we have it as well in Aka Streams. You know, Aka Streams implements this reactive stream specification that we helped create that RxJava and many of the other sort of reactive programming libraries implement. But I think it would be sad if it just stopped there. Because for me, reactive is much more than just reactive programming or functional reactive programming. It's about systems and creating systems that has a way of dealing with essentially being, I mean, according to the manifesto, essentially being responsive under both severe failure scenarios when things go south, because that's something it will do. In every complex system, something will always fail somewhere. It's just a fact. You just have to embrace that failure is imminent. It will happen. It probably happens all the time to some extent. And instead of trying to prevent from happening and, God forbid, using try-catch statements, et cetera, in Java or whatever, instead embrace it and see it as a natural state in the application or the system lifecycle. It's nothing wrong. It's nothing weird. It's nothing alien, right? It's nothing to be afraid of when it comes to failure. It's it's a natural state in the application lifecycle. And if you look at it like that, it's just a regular state in the state machine, so to speak. Then you know how to get out of there. You know how you got there. You know how to get out of there. And and it's exceptional. And I think that's one thing that we have sort of failed, at least in the Java enterprise space, to understand that and embrace failure in this sense. And this is something that reactive systems try to do. And the other sort of leg or pillar or what you want to call it is that it needs to be responsive under heavy load and often unpredictable load when you have no idea that load will increase. You can, of course, if possible, work proactively, analyzing uses trends, for example, you know, Black Friday or Christmas is always goes up, etc. But sometimes you can't, and then you need to react in a more reactive fashion. And, you know, we're giving all these great sort of environments now in in the cloud that sort of gives back sort of utility computing and pay-as-you-go type of models. It's really sad that most applications that are written actually can't take advantage of that. They are not elastic. And they're deployed on, on software middleware that's not really elastic. And I think Reactor really tries to focus on these two things I mean, always be responsive in the face of failure and in the face of heavy load and really embrace the cloud. And that's more than reactive programming. Reactive programming is sort of a tool, a great tool to use a building block to get there, but it's not the end of the story.
0: And I want to dig in a little bit more. So when you're first talking about Reactive, before I asked you to elaborate, you mentioned back pressure and you kind of touched around the being responsive in there. So how does the akka world, whether or not it's one of the modules or built core into akka, deal with the back pressure concept and handle back pressure?
1: Regular actors don't manage back pressure. You have to do it by hand, but that's why we have created akka Streams, which is a dsl on top of actors as i've already said to create workflow and that has back pressure built in as part of the of the protocol and i think back pressure is essential to build resilient systems because especially at the edge of a system when you put yourself in the hands of another system then you're really at the mercy of that system and, and how fast that can work in producing you know load and and really in order to have a healthy system, I think you need all components to participate in a steady flow and with the right resource utilization level. Usually if you go beyond eighty percent utilization, then queuing theory kicks in and you get host. And it doesn't help if in your sort of workflow chain, if all of the of the stages, their components or, or subsystems or whatever you want to call them, participates apart from one then that can still cause a lot of problems. So that is extremely important that all of the stages, all the way up to the client, participates in the negotiating of the the rate of the element or requests should flow. And this was the reason why we created the reactive streams specification. It was, I mean, we kicked it off, but it's been a joint work between a bunch of companies, um, Netflix, Pivotal, Red Hat, even Oracle, Doglia actually have added it to be included in Java 9 now as a flow abstraction. Because this gives the possibility of many implementing the same negotiation protocol, and you can actually compose different libraries and have them coexist in this fully back-pressured workflow chain. We've also written drivers for things like Kafka and, and Spark Streaming and so on. There are many more to be written. And this is also a great opportunity for people to contribute. But as more and more of these you know, NoSQL databases, streaming projects, et cetera, implement the reactive stream specification, more and more can, can exist in this ecosystem and make sure that we're all good citizens, essentially.
0: And we've mentioned the word a number of times, which was streams, whether it's Aka streams or reactive streams in general. and This is just getting back to the old concept of treating all data as streams, right? Where you have no idea if it's going to be, if you're reading a log as it's being generated, you have no idea how quickly that comes or not. And it's about saying, I know you're generating this, but you're generating this faster than I can consume. So... I am able to tell you to slow down the generation because I can't keep up. Or maybe if I'm lucky, as you mentioned, the elasticity, I'm getting way out of hand. But maybe this is something that can be concurrent, if not flat out parallel. And I guess use the Scala behavior to generate multiple workers that can then coordinate the dispatch of processing these lines.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And especially since you're now working on the level of above actors, you can do all this in a fully type safe way. And this means that you can do optimizations, operator fusion, and these type of things. And also, as you said, already like sort of parallelize out operators that have no coupling that are naturally embarrassingly parallel. So I think it's very interesting. And this sort of is all part of what I call reactive programming. What's hard though is when you need to bridge this across system, then you need to think about more and more then you'll sort of enter this world of distributed systems and it's a very different world. Reactor programming is usually more event based, where you have events flowing, while distributed systems requires you to think in terms of messages and message passing.
0: And you mentioned event sourcing a little bit. And then one of the other things, I know you gave a talk at Reactor Summit about microservices. We've mentioned distributed systems, so I want to kind of dig into some of that and the difference and leading into thinking of microservices as just actors, but at different scale or maybe the same scale, depending on how it is. So from your view of working in an actor model, you're now looking at microservices. What are some of the lessons that should be learned and either applied or disapplied when you're looking at something like be it Erlang actors or akka actors or something, and converting that to be thinking in terms of microservices?
1: So that is sort of exactly where I'm coming from. I'm used to thinking in actors and have sort of implemented microservices-based systems for quite some years, even before it was coined microservices, I think. So it's been an interesting evolution, I think. and Now microservices are extremely hot. But a lot of people are excited that don't think in terms of distributed computing. They approach it from the monolith and think, yeah, it's just a matter of slicing it up and then you're done, right? The problem with that and approaching it from that side and not having respect for distributed systems means that you can easily creating a distributed monolith, either by having your microservices share libraries, for example, that, so that it holds progress means every single team building a microservice need to wait for each other team owning the shared libraries. And when you update one microservice, you need to do it in lockstep, usually, because they all rely on the same underlying library. This is bad, of course. The other sort of aspect of it that I see is that people are so used to synchronous communication. And when they just slice up the monolith, they continue to think in terms of semantics and behavior as being synchronous. And that means that they naturally fall back to just use synchronous HTTP, most often using REST. I'm not saying that REST is necessarily synchronous, but that's usually how people perceive REST. And just doing that means that, sure, some of the benefits of higher agility and velocity when it comes to rolling out features, you will get, but you miss out on all the greatness of really being to take advantage of the cloud and distributed systems, because in order to do that, You need to fully embrace asynchronous message passing, I think. You need to embrace the network, embrace the constraints of the network, and and fully, fully understand that you need to change the way you think about communication in order to be successful, in order to get what we talk about in the Reactive Manifesto, systems that are truly elastic, in which your microservices are mobile, that they can move around within the system in order to be optimized for locality of reference, for example and et cetera, as well as being truly resilient. It also ties into one of the hallmarks of the ACR model, which is isolation. And if your microservices are not truly isolated, then they can't be resilient because you will easily get into problems with cascading failures, or in a fully synchronous sort of call chain over arrest between different microservices, one of the microservices fail, all the others need to wait. For no good reason, they could easily serve others' requests, but if you use blocking, io instead of survey asynchronous io as the backend for that then everyone needs to stall waiting for that service to come back that just failed so i think it's a lot back to you know the core principles of distributed systems decoupling try to decouple each single service as much as possible and that will have huge impacts how you design your system and you can't just continue to think the way you've always done like you used to Especially need to learn something new and rethink your fundamentals. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't see people do that that much, because that's, of course, hard and it takes effort. But I don't think there's no escaping that if you want to play in the world of the distributed systems, you just need to embrace the network. You need to embrace it, else you will get bitten. And history has proven that trying to hide it too much, doing some abstraction, doesn't work. Like we've done in RPC. You know, EJBs, CORBA, XA transactions—all these things have failed just because we tried to hide it, and that simply doesn't work. Sorry, that was a long, long rant, but
0: (laughs) no worries. And you mentioned the message passing, and that REST doesn't necessarily work, or REST, as most people think of REST, doesn't work. So when you're taking this and you're looking at these systems based off what you've learned from your time using the actor model, what does the message passing between the microservices look like?
1: From a conceptual standpoint, I think it's all back to decoupling. And I I usually tend to think about decoupling in two different axes. First, you want to decouple things in time. That is essentially what gives concurrency. It can give concurrency on a single thread, even through interleaving, like Node.js and others do. But the more interesting aspect is the other axis, I think, which is decoupling in space. And that is what gives distribution and mobility and et cetera, elasticity and also actually true isolation even. And message passing is really about decoupling in space. It's actually decoupling in both time and space, but not just time. Because the way I look at it, the essence of message passing is distribution nowadays most cpus are multi-core even in your phones today it's usually at least dual or probably quad core so that means that you're already doing distributed computing on a single machine on a single processor and the problem is that if you think in terms of if you use sort of the old techniques for solving the c- concurrency problem threads or locks or mpi or something like that then you still need i mean as soon as you enter the it, that across the network, then you need to introduce yet another sort of paradigm and yet another set of tools. I mean, message brokers or the raw sockets or something like that. But I think that's really unfortunate because it's really the same abstraction. The way I look at it is that it doesn't matter if your core sits in the same CPU on the same machine, or if it sits on another CPU on another machine. It's just message passing. If it happens to sit just next to you, then that's good. And it's good for a lot of things like optimizations and low latency, stuff like that. But if you look at the world, like it's all distributed computing, the course can be anywhere, and you use message passing all the way through, then you don't need to change the way you think about things as the system scales. It means that your abstractions scale through all the dimensions of scale in, in a way from one, I mean, across one CPU, across the different sockets, across CPUs, across nodes, across data centers, even it all just works with the same semantics apart from higher latency, perhaps. So that's a sort of a change in semantics. And this is really why, I, why I love message passing that it's around, by embracing the constraints, you get more freedom in a way, it opens up for more possibilities. And that said, I really think that message passing should be the default for all distributed computing, including microservices. So it's a great way to start thinking about it like that, because it will affect the way you think about your problem and the way you're solving the problem. You solve it in a more general way. Then, after you have designed your system, you actually do choose to use REST, and even synchronous REST in some cases. That might be fine. I have nothing against... HTTP or Synchronous HTTP in general, or REST or any of that. But if you start with it, then that will affect your design in such a way that you can't opt out of it very easily. While going from the other way around, you can see that's an optimization. Optimizations for understandability. You know, people are used to REST. I mean, if you expose endpoints, most of the systems sort of expect REST APIs at the edge of the system for interoperability and so on. And that might be fine. But I try to sort of move towards rest in that direction as an optimization more than as a default.
0: So are there any tips or things to look for as someone who's built a message coordination system in Akka that you need to think about when you're communicating between your services to help ensure that they are asynchronous and you're not putting a synchronous part in? because you can't connect to a message broker or something, which is then taking care of the asynchronicity in the communication between your services.
1: If you use a good runtime, like Akka, for example, then it takes care of some of that for you. You have mechanisms that can help you with that. And we already talked about back pressure. That's, of course, important. And back pressure should also be able to flag if a service is down, so it doesn't get overloaded. But if that's Hard, then if you can use event logging to store things on disk. You know, using Kafka, for example, that can have like terabytes of messages on disk, and then pick them up later when the failing service is up to make sure that you don't lose any messages in case you can't do back pressure and tell the producer to slow down. But when it comes to I mean things like asynchronous I/O and non-blocking and things like that, I mean using something like Aka or Aka.net or Aaron or something like that is the way to go you shouldn't really have to think about these things on a day-to-day basis in my opinion the tools should give you the the high level abstractions to do the right thing that should be enough
0: okay and i wasn't sure that akko would communicate across a couple different services and i understood that it kind of gave you some location transparency inside your service but i wasn't sure between a couple different apps slash services
1: there are different aspects to it or situations i mean if your whole system is implemented using akka i mean then you can just use akka's actor refs and akka remoting and akka cluster to have to communicate across but if you use microservices, then very often need to rely on more and more general protocols and then you can't use akka shared references or, or actor refs as, as they are called for for communication But as I said before, ACA itself is a very low, it's it's not a very low level. It's sort of a high level toolkit in one way, but it's a low level toolkit in one way. So you need to do a lot of these things yourself if you use raw actors. You need to design the protocols yourself and you need to make sure that the protocols work with back pressure, etc. That's why we have layered more high level things on top, like ACA Streams, for example, that helps you with some of this.
0: Okay, and that all makes sense. And I can see that. And some of that was just lessons learned for people who might not be in Java, might not be in C-sharp or F-sharp or VB.net, where they're able to take advantage of Aka or .net and those lessons, but should still be able to take those lessons away if there's a push for microservices and take those lessons, learn them, start to embrace the network as you were talking about, embracing failure. If someone's doing a node cluster or, A Ruby cluster or a Python cluster or something that doesn't necessarily have all these tools to make sure that.
1: Yeah. If I had to build something without ACA, I would probably gravitate towards the same principles here of isolation, being able to signal failure sort of outside the scope of the failed component, for example. I mean, we we call this supervision that allows you to not just throw the error in the client's face, like you used to do in Java and C++ and C Sharp and so on as a default programming model, but actually send it to the one that can do something about it, probably the component that created you, and also have the Erlang concept of linking. In Akai, we call it Watch. So you have others can actually subscribe to the lifecycle of a component, and if a component fails, you will get a signal saying what happened, so you can take action accordingly. It all boils down to isolation and message passing essentially I mean for true isolation you really need to embrace asynchronous message passing again you need to have this asynchronous boundary between components that give you isolation that allows you to break free from the strong coupling that we see in most systems today written in java and and etc so I think that's key but that all goes down to principles you know the way you think about software design and, and the semantic behavior between components essentially But there's a reason why message passing is the core trait in the the reactive system. So I think a lot of things are solved by fully going all in on on asynchronous message passing. Usually both asynchronous I.O. and and asynchronous communication like falls out of that, as well as isolation.
0: And we've covered a lot. And you've helped reinforce a lot of stuff for me. But there may be people out there who are still getting their toes wet on some of this stuff. And I might be mid-calf high on some of this stuff and thinking about distributed systems. So you mentioned the Reactive Manifesto. Are there any good resources besides that that you would point people to to start getting the exposure, start understanding the problems and knowing which questions they should start asking when they apply this back to their work?
1: Yeah, just six months ago, I released a book that's called Reactive Microservices Architecture that sort of tried to teach people the reactive principles But in the context of microservices, and that's something that most people probably thinking about right now and thinking about how they can apply microservices. So it's in a way trying to do what I just said, embrace microservices, not just from a velocity and team agility perspective, but actually trying to do it from a distributed computing perspective, how you can get the best out of microservices for both of these reasons. So that is a free book at O'Reilly. It's really short. you probably read it in a couple of hours. You can find it at probably Google React Microservice Architecture, but you can find it from our website, Lightbend.com. We have a blog there that we've written a ton of material for, for Reactive and ACA and, and all these things that we have talked about. And ACA.io is the website for ACA. There we have an ACA blog that we have also written a ton of interesting blog posts, fairly easily digestible, that you can dive into.
0: And that just gets into where can people find you and more information about what's going on. So Lightbend, the Aka is there any other places for people to find out more and keep up to date with you and your progress and what you're working on in general?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I have my personal website called J O N A S B O N E R J-O-N-A-S-B-O-N-E-R.com. And I tried to link to all my talks there. So, um, I need to revive my blog. I used to write a bunch of blogs. There are probably not that much when it comes to the blog, but there's an article archive for other articles I've written for other magazines, Read, Write, Web, and The Jackson, and all these things.
0: And I'll get those added to the show notes as well with a bunch of the other references we've talked to so people can come back, look at the episode, and find out more. Okay. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Jonas, for taking your time to join me today. As I mentioned, it was reinforcing and just highlighting some of those things I haven't necessarily ingrained and starting to make my way of thinking about the separation and decoupling different services, even inside the app to thinking about how to decouple them at a broader distributed level. So thanks for taking your time to join me. And it was a pleasure talking with you.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for inviting me to the show.
0: Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.